The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Question the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Being in fellowship is a simple act of applying the principle of 1 John 1, 9, that if we admit or acknowledge our sins to God, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whenever we sin, we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who produces growth in our lives. Sinning does not abrogate all the ministries of the Holy Spirit in our life, but just those related to our spiritual advance. So, obviously, if we're out of fellowship, we've sinned, we're not going to be able to grow, our prayers won't be heard, and we won't be doing anything in the spiritual life except producing wood, hay, and straw. We can't understand the Word of God apart from the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, so we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer in order to make sure we are in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, and ready to focus on the teaching of God's Word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can gather together in a free nation, a nation that allows us to freely study your word and to teach your word. Father, we know there are many things in our lives and our belief systems that are contrary to your word and that the process of spiritual growth is a process of exchanging our human viewpoint thinking for the divine viewpoint truth of your word. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ by renewing our thinking, to renovate our mind. This is not always an easy task, but it is essential for spiritual advance that we be able to think as you would have us to think, to be able to understand and evaluate the things around us through a divine viewpoint framework. And that only comes by the steady and consistent study, intake, and metabolism of your word. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we would understand these things, that we might believe them and apply them in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 17, right at the end. We 
finished it up last week, but we need to go back and take a quick snapshot of it again to prepare ourselves for what we will discover. Chapter 18. Once again, I find that in our study of Judges, it is fortuitous that we come to some of the passages that we come to in this study because of what it, because of its application, the principles we're discovering here, and their application to what's going on in contemporary society and the world around us. What we find in the book of Judges is a critique of culture, a critique of the apostate culture of Israel in contrast to the positive, spiritually advancing culture of the, pre, of the Joshua generation that came in under the conquest, operated under the faith rest drill in order to uh, take the land that God had promised them. God had given an allotment, a, a, an inheritance to each tribe, to each family, to each, to each clan, to each family in each tribe. And that was to be passed down from generation to generation. If you go back and look at the Mosaic Law, if it were necessary in order to pay off debts to sell the land that was the, yours, that was your family's inheritance, then at the year of Jubilee, that land returns back to the family. So the families never lost their possession once they gained it. And the tribes only partially gained their inheritance in the conquest. And we studied in Judges chapter 1 that the reason they failed to completely conquer the land was because they compromised with the pagan, pagan philosophies, pagan religions, the pagan thinking of the Canaanites who inhabited the land. And the more they compromised, the more they became impacted in their own thinking with paganism. So that by the end of the period of the Judges, the apostate Jews are living, worshiping, in the, and uh, carrying out their lives in the same way of the pagan culture surrounding them. They were virtually indistinguishable from the unbelieving pagans that they were supposed to have annihilated under God's command of holy war to take the land. This is, of course, analogous as a teaching point for the apostate believer. And we live in a culture today when you have, according to some surveys, as many as 60-70% of the people claiming to be believers in God and claiming to be saved. I noted recently that, that uh, I think it was in a survey that, that uh, was done by uh, George Barnum that a, something like uh, uh, 40-something percent, I don't remember the exact number, 46 or 47 percent, of the, I think it was 45 percent of the people in, uh, no, work my numbers, 55 percent of the people surveyed believed that Jesus would come back in the rapture for the church. But only 33 percent claimed to be born again believers in that survey. So that means you have a ready made event, uh, missionary field of 22 percent who believe the, Jesus is going to come back at the rapture for the church, but they're not ready. They're not saved. So they think Jesus is coming back, but they're not ready. So um, anyway, we live in an apostate culture today where there are many people who claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, claim to be born again, claim to be 
children of God, members of the royal family of God, but don't have a clue what that means. They are doctrinally ignorant, but they are religiously uh, active. They go to church. They, go, they sing a lot of Christian songs. They may get involved with Christian music and all kinds of activities and programs in their local church. But they're basically doctrinally ignorant. They don't know the Scriptures, and they don't understand the least little thing about the doctrines in the Scripture. Consequently, they have no discernment whatsoever, and they get deceived by every sort of false teaching that comes along, and they get uh, distracted by everything that enters into their life that is not doctrinal. They often think that these things are good and wonderful because they have the name of Jesus attached to them. They are said to be biblical, or perhaps some somebody from one of their favorite seminaries has said something, and because they don't know the Bible and they don't have any doctrine, they just suck up whatever comes along, uh, no matter how unbiblical or undoctrinal it might be. And this is exactly the kind of situation that Israel is in, and we're, we get a picture at the end of Judges in chapters 17 through 21 of how the nation became apostate, because the the moral problem, the political problems, the military collapse of Israel, was all, and the economic problems, all were the results of a spiritual problem. See, the solution to a nation's problem is not found through politicians. It's not found through legislation. In fact, the more legislation there is, the more problems develop. Because the solution is with the soul of the nation, the people in the nation, and a nation that is comprised of apostates who are operating on human viewpoint thinking is always going to fragment and is always going to fall apart. Now, what happens in Judges chapter 17 is we see the beginning, the beginning of the apostasy in Israel. And it happened with Micah and his a man by the name of Micah and his mother. And Micah has a little, uh, set up a little shrine in contrast to the Mosaic Law, which said there was only to be one site of worship in Israel, and that was supposed to be at the tabernacle. All other worship sites were to be destroyed, and we studied those uh, passages last time in Deuteronomy. But he has his own shrine and his own idols, and he is uh, not very moral. You see, um, uh, morality and religion cannot solve the problem of criminality. You have only biblical truth can solve that problem when the person is regenerate and then their thinking has been renewed by the Word of God. That doesn't happen. You can pass all the laws in the world, and it doesn't do any good. In fact, I uh, read a report this last week from Australia that the uh, Australians completely banned the ownership of firearms this last year, and so far crime is up. In some cases, it has doubled because the criminals did not give up their guns, only the law-abiding citizens. And so now the criminals know that all they have to do is walk into a house, they've got a gun, and they, they won't be shot. And then there was a case last year in England where because somebody owned a gun and did not have it registered, when their house was broken into and their lives were threatened, they used a firearm to protect their life. But they were the ones who were thrown in jail because there was an illegal possession of a firearm. So... You see that society is just falling apart and going from bad to worse. Well, anyhow, morality is not enough to simply control the problem of sin. 
and that's the ultimate problem of criminality in any nation. The reason it falls apart is because of sin. And so the only solution is regeneration. But you have this uh, Micah. He's a crook. He's got a criminal mentality. He steals 1,100 shekels of silver from his mother, which is equivalent to about 150 to $160,000. But she doesn't have a lot of integrity either because she swears to give it all to God and she only gives 200 shekels to God and keeps the rest for herself. And he sets up a little shrine uh, with the money he gives her. He, he makes another idol, sets up a shrine, and then a Levite came along. We studied that last time. And, and uh, this Levite is not operating according to the rules of the Levites. He's not with other Levites. He's not operating out of the central shrine. He's too young to take on the task of a priest at this point. He's a young man in Na'ar, which indicates he's just a, probably a teenager, uh, probably 17, 18 years of age. And so he is going to uh, go along and work with this uh, Micah in order to give some sort of superficial legitimacy to his religious operation there. And so at the end of chapter 17, we read the statement, Then Micah said, Now I know... That the Lord, notice how he uses religious verbiage. I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. Now, I want you to notice that this is typical of many pagan religions. It, it operates on superstition, on, on, on mysticism, the idea that if I just do something a certain way, that if I just have the overt form of religion and not the substance of doctrinal accuracy, then God's somehow going to bless me if I just have the right rabbit's foot, if I just enunciate the correct formula, if I just go through the right motions, if I just associate myself with the right church. I know even in Bible churches and doctrinal churches, there are many people who uh, aren't very serious about doctrine. It's not the number one priority in their life. They're not renovating their thinking, but they like to show up because there are other people who have similar opinions other people who, and the opinions of the pastor are the opinions that they are more sympathetic to, so they like to associate with, with those people. And they think simply by association that somehow uh, God blesses them and they're growing spiritually. So this is an extremely superficial view of spirituality. Micah is, in fact, putting God in a box. He's treating God in the same way that most pagans do, and that is that that God is going to be manipulated if I just go through the right motions. If I say the right thing, do the right thing, go through the right ritual, then God will be, uh, God is going to do what I think God ought to do. And so, and once again, it is nothing more than superficial religion. It is the uh, concept that man is in control and not God. Notice he is looking for God to prosper him. And this is the verb, uh, yatav, from the noun tov, which means good, pleasing, well. And it means that God will treat me well. So the idea, if I just have a Levite here, it doesn't matter what my doctrine is. It doesn't matter that I'm violating God's will as expressed in the Mosaic Law. It doesn't matter how much sin, carnality, false doctrine I teach. As long as I have a Levite here, that's going to somehow give uh, legitimacy to my operation. And of course, prosperity was a major issue at that time. Remember, I've said again and again and again that what happens during this time in Israel is that the people are succumbing to the Baal worship of the Canaanites. 
Baal worship was one of many manifestations in the cultures in the ancient world of fertility religions. And in the fertility religions, you worshiped the god, whether it was Baal or Astarte or, or Dagon or any of the other gods related to fertility. You worshiped them by going to their uh, temple sites, to the sacred groves or whatever, and getting involved in sexual intercourse with the uh, temple priestesses. And thereby, if you engaged in a sexual act with the temple priestess, that somehow that would motivate God to make your, your land fertile so that you would have more crops. You would not, uh, your crops would not be destroyed by drought or grasshoppers or anything else. And if you had better crops, you would make more money, and therefore you would be prosperous. It was the prosperity gospel of the ancient world, that somehow if I just engage in a certain act, follow a certain procedure, then God automatically is going to bless me, and that is interpreted in materialistic terms in light of prosperity, in light of fertility, and in uh, light of health. So it's just another version of what is known today and what has come to be proclaimed, of course, in a little bit different way, the health and wealth gospel or prosperity gospel. So we see that man in his arrogance treats God like a good luck charm. He's a, he's a rabbit's foot. He's a genie in the bottle that if we just learn how to rub it the right way, that he's going to pop out and give us whatever it is that we want. And the problem with at the root of all forms of prosperity religion is it's looking for a quick fix solution. We live in an age today where we can go through the drive through window and get instant food. We can pick it up. We can go down to the grocery store. We can pick up microwave dinners, pop them in the microwave, and we have an instant meal. We have instant gratification of many of our wants and desires. And we think that God and spiritual growth ought to follow the same pattern. But that never really solves the problem. It is part of the problem. It's not part of the solution. So what we have at the end here is a picture of how Israel will come to treat God as just someone out there to, to satisfy their wants, their desires, and their needs. And God exists to make them happy. They do not exist to glorify and honor God. They have completely reversed everything. Now, that situation is not too different from today. It starts off with Micah, one person, and we're going to see how it impacts the whole nation in chapter 18. So look at chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. Again, a reminder that they're not under the authority of God. They've rejected God as the king of Israel in their theocracy. And then it goes on to read, In those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. Well, what's going on here? Why hadn't it fallen to them? Why is it that that the Danites have to seek an inheritance? Don't they already have one? Well, let's do a little background work here. Turn to Joshua chapter 19, verse 40. Joshua chapter 19, verse 40. Here we're going to see the allotment of the land. How the land was allotted to the various tribes is uh, developed in Joshua chapter 19. Look at the first verse, verse 40. Excuse me, the first verse I want to look at is verse 40. The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the children of Dan. So they used lots in order to determine the apportionment of the land. 
The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families. Verse 41, And the territory of their inheritance was Zorah and Eshtaol and Ir Shemesh. Now, if you've been with us for very long here in this study, that would immediately say, well, I've heard of those places before. Of course you have. That's where Samson grew up. That was Samson's neighborhood. That was his hometown, Zorah and Eshtaol. And in fact, the name Shemshon is a derivative of Shemesh, which is the Hebrew word for son. So the writer doesn't put this in here just because they're geographical localities. He's not simply listing the town. This, this ought to bring something to our, our mind. And God the Holy Spirit wants us to think of Samson and the eventual apostasy that occurs in Dan. So, but the other thing I want you to note is the Hebrew word for territory. The territory, and here it's the Hebrew word, gabul. Gabul. And gabul means a territory, a, a, a border, a boundary, or a territory. It refers to a delineated piece of real estate. Now, I'm going to make some points at the end of this message. And if you're going to understand where we go and some of the important things that are going on today in terms of some false teaching, then you better remember this word. It, it refers to a specific piece of real estate, a border, a boundary, or a territory. So they have a territory that is assigned to them that is part of their inheritance. And then the following verses go on to list various cities that are in that inheritance. And then you come down to verse 47. And in verse 47 we read, And the territory of the sons of Dan preceded Beyond them. Now, that's really an awkward translation. It's a difficult phrase in the Hebrew, but it's basically an idiom in the Hebrew for the fact that, that they never quite got it. It was always just out there in front of them, and they never quite gained full possession of it. It was difficult for them to, to take it from the Canaanites, and we'll see why in just a minute. And then it goes on to say, For the sons of Dan went up and fought with Leshem, and that's another way of staying Laish, which is the area we'll read about in chapter 18 of Judges. They fought with Leshem and captured it. Then they struck it with the edge of the sword and possessed it and settled in it, and they called Leshem Dan after the name of Dan their father. Now, just to note, the liberals always go to a passage like this and say, see, see, this just shows the, the, the way the Hebrews wrote. This didn't happen the way it said in Judges 18 um, historically because Joshua 19 describes it as happening during the time of the conquest. Judges 18 says that it happened uh, much later. Well, that just shows that they don't truly understand the nature of Hebrew historiography. In the mind of the Hebrews, they would write history topically, not chronologically. So when they got on the topic of what happened to Dan... They would go ahead and work it on out into its eventual result. And the eventual result is what's described in Judges 18. It's not saying that the events of verse 47 occurred when Joshua invaded the land or at the time of the conquest generation. It is simply giving the ultimate result of Dan, what happened in the future, and the uh, specific details of verse 47 are given us in uh, chapter 18 of the book of Judges. 
And then we read in Joshua 19.48, This was the inheritance of the tribe of the sons of Dan, according to their families, these cities with their villages. Now, the inheritance was the land, the real estate that God gave them. This was their positional reality. This was their possession. Now, they didn't actually own it yet. They haven't taken possession, but God has given it to them. In the same way that God has blessed every single believer with a vast array of spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Those are our realities. We got it all at the cross. There is not some second act that we have to go through in the process of the Christian life, whether it's dedication, yieldedness, presenting your body, whatever it is, speaking in tongues, baptism of the Holy Spirit, or any of the other uh, things that are usually suggested that you hoops you have to jump through in order to get what God has to give you. God gave it all to us at the moment of salvation. It is our positional reality, but it is only potentially ours. It is contingent upon our spiritual growth. For that reason, I call it contingent blessings. There are contingent blessings in time and contingent blessings in eternity. They are contingent upon our spiritual growth. They are not contingent upon our obedience. What do I mean by that? I mean that God is not giving it to us in some legalistic fashion, that if I'm obedient, then God's going to give it to to me. We've studied this many, many times, and, and if I spend the time developing it this morning, then we won't get where we need to go this morning. Remember, at the point of salvation, God imputes to every believer his own perfect righteousness. Now, we have perfect righteousness. On the basis of that perfect righteousness, God blesses us. Not because of anything we do, not because of who we are. But as we grow, God is going to distribute those contingent blessings because we now have the maturity to uh, function in those blessings and for those blessings not to destroy us. You see, the same thing would apply in your life. Think of, think of yourself as a parent. You have a six-year-old kid. You have unlimited wealth. You have a bank account worth worth billions. You, you, Bill Gates died and left you everything. Just wanted to see if anybody was awake. And you have a six-year-old. So you're going to go out and get him a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. You're going to give him the keys? No. He's going to wrap that Lamborghini around the first tree he comes to and kill himself because he is not mature enough to operate on that gift. And see, that's how God distributes those contingent blessings to us. It's not on the basis of obedience, but when we're obedient and we are walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, confessing our sins to be restored to fellowship, advancing in the spiritual life, uh, realizing that uh, our sin nature has been crucified with Christ and therefore we are no longer enslaved to the sin nature, so we have uh, real ability to choose not to sin, to stay in fellowship, abide in Christ, advance to spiritual maturity. Then as we grow and mature and develop capacity to enjoy those blessings, God distributes those blessings. If we, don't, if we don't grow, those blessings remain undistributed. They are ours potentially. And when you die and go to heaven and at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll get a glimpse of the blessings that we missed out on because of our failure to advance and grow spiritually. Notice the issue is advancing and growing spiritually. The issue is not trying to figure out what the uh, ritual is, what the formula is, what the... Uh, 
uh, right words are to say in order to get those blessings. That's legalism and it's paganism. The Bible says that God distributes our blessings on the basis of our spiritual growth and maturity. They are given to us at the instant of salvation. It's by grace, not based on who we are or what we do. And it is built, the New Testament teaching on inheritance and rewards is built on the Old Testament concept of inheritance for the Jews in the land. Not all Jews had possessions. Remember, Levites did not have a possession in the land. They did not have a tribal inheritance. They were in the land, but they didn't have an an inheritance or a possession in the land. But the Danites were to have a possession in the land, and they had received their inheritance. But they never claimed their inheritance. In other words, their inheritance, which is analogous to our contingent blessings in time and eternity, was never realized. It was theirs potentially, it was theirs positionally, but it was never theirs actually because they failed to trust God to give them the victory over the Canaanites. They didn't follow God's methodology and they didn't believe His promise. Instead, they compromised and they were defeated. And this is clearly stated in the first chapter of Judges, in Judges 1, 34 and 35. In Judges 1, 34 we read, Then the Amorites, the Amorites were those who lived in that inheritance section that, belonged, that was given to Dan. The Amorites were the Canaanite group of pagans that, that, that inhabited that section. When Dan went to battle against them to take possession of their inheritance, the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. There's no victory here like at Jericho or Ai or or Gibeah or any of the other areas. They are not operating on the faith rest deal, not trusting God, relying upon their own strength, and so the result of compromise is always defeat. They never realize the blessings God has for them. Verse 35, Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Harris, in Aijalon, and in Sha'alvim, but when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. So the house of Joseph refers to Ephraim and Manasseh. Those are the two tribes descended from the two sons of Joseph. So the Danites failed. The Danites failed to take possession, so they had to, to do something about it. And this is where we find ourselves in chapter 18. Here's a map. Now, in this map, we see the tribal allotments of the Jews. If you look down in, in this area, right here, you see the original allotment to Dan. This area here towards the center is where the hill country was. And then down, these are the lowlands down here. So they're forced to inhabit this area up in the hill country. They didn't take the coastlands or the area that was more fertile and more available for agriculture. And this is, of course, where we find the cities of Timnah and Zorah and Eshteroth, which is where uh, Samson lived. So they failed to take the land. They're just restricted to a small portion of what God had given them. And what they're going to do in chapter 18 is send out some spies and look for some land that they can take. See, in carnality, the believer says, okay, I'm not willing to trust God and apply the principles and promises and procedures that God's given me Because that's too difficult. So I'm going to look for some other methodology to get some kind of prosperity and blessing in life. The believer in carnality is always looking for a quick fix, some 
uh, magic solution, some easy ritual or procedure to get involved in that if I just say it the right way or do it the right way, that somehow God then is automatically going to to bless me and prosper me. I'm not going to have to stay in fellowship. I'm not going to have to uh, spend my time on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night studying the Word of God. I'm not going to have to learn to think. I'm not going to have to learn to, uh, to evaluate my own thinking to root out the human viewpoint and exchange it for divine viewpoint. I'm not going to have to self-critique in terms of the uh, written Word of God. I'm just going to find something that will give me spiritual blessing and then I will have everything God wants me. See, we recast God in our image rather than letting God define the issues for us. And so Dan is going to leave their allotment here, and they're going to head north and look for some land that they can just take from somebody. And see, you can barely see it on this map, but, um, it, well, you can't see it too well on the overhead for some reason. But right at the very top, uh, up near the, that's the Sea of Galilee, uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, right at the very top it says Dan. And that's where they went just off the, uh, just off of the top of this particular map. They were looking for something they could take from somebody else without having to go through the tough procedure of having to submit themselves to the authority of God and living life on, on God's terms. Here's another map here, looking at it from the vantage point of the south uh, southeast, you're looking at Israel and the yellow section right here, uh, just south of Gezer, is the original allotment of Dan. They never took it, and they headed north. This this purple shaded area here is Naphtali, and they went north of there, north of there. Once again, off of that map, they went into another area where there really wasn't going to be any difficulty in uh, getting some land. So they're completely out of the will of God. So let's go back to Judges chapter 18 and see how this develops. They sent out spies. It's reminiscent of what the uh, Jews did at Kadesh Barnea when they sent spies, two from each tribe into the land, or one from each tribe into the land in order to um, spy out the land to see how they were going to take it. So the children of Dan, verse 2, the children of Dan sent five men of their family from their territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtaol, to spy out the land and search it. They said to them, go search the land. So they're on a recon mission to find out where they can find some easy-to-get real estate, where they won't have to do it God's way. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. So as they head out, notice... As they head out, they're going north. They're down here in Dan, and they head north across Ephraim. And it just so happens that the first thing they do is they run into the house of Micah. And so they stay with Micah. Now, Micah, as we saw before, if he stole uh, the uh, 1,100 shekels from his mother, then they were fairly wealthy. This is a prosperous family. So they had a large house, and these five men are going to stay with them. Verse 3, while they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. Now, the Hebrew there doesn't really mean they recognized. It means they responded to the voice of, Levi, uh, of the Levite. They heard what he was teaching, and they said, well, this sounds good. This teaching sounds good. Uh, I think that we'll, uh, we'll go along with this guy. 
They were at the house of Micah. They responded to the voice of the young Levite. They turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? Now they want to find out a little bit more about him. Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? What kind of deal do you have with Micah? Remember last time we saw that Micah was going to pay all his bills, give him his food, and give him a new suit of clothes every year. So he had all of his uh, physical needs taken care of. Not only that, he got to be the head of his own religious system. So that appealed to his, his um, power lust. Now his response to their questioning is in verse 4. He said to them, Thus and so Micah did for me. He's hired me, and I have become his priest. Notice, I'm not a priest of God. I am Micah's priest. He's got, he and Micah have a good, probably prosperous, religious scam going on. Verse 5, so they said to him, Please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. See, this is how people think in human viewpoint. Ask, ask God if this is going to be prosperous. It's sort of like rubbing the um, uh, rabbit's foot or looking in the uh, uh, newspaper for the uh, astrology column to find out if we're going to have good luck or prosperity today. And notice their concern is prosperity. Their concern is getting something from God. Verse 6, And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The presence of the Lord will be with you on your way. Notice people in false religion always tell you that everything is going to be great and wonderful and you're not going to have any opposition or difficulty in life. In fact, you're going to discover some, uh, some great thing, a path to wealth. You're going to have a tremendous romance in your life and many children. It always comes out the same way. They never tell you that, uh, no, you're going to be dying of cancer in two years. Your marriage is going to fall apart. You're going to be thrown in jail under... Uh, False charges. They never tell you those kinds of things, but that happens to people all the time. So uh, false religion always wants to tell people wonderful things so that the people in turn will pay them a lot of money. Verse 7, So the five men departed and went to Laish, that's up north. They saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians. Laish was a colony of Sidon. Sidon was on the coast, on the Mediterranean coast, in one of the two major cities. At this time, it was superior to Tyre. Later, Tyre overshadowed, overshadowed Sidon. But Sidon is on the coast. But Sidon is separated from Laish by a small mountain range. And so there's not a lot of interaction between the two cities, even though it's an outpost or colony of Sidon. So they come up there and they discover this unprotected city, and they decide, well, we're just going to steal this land from the Sidonians. And so they, uh, they go back to their brethren. In verse 8, the spies came back to their brethren at Zorah and Eshtaol. And their brethren said to them, what's your report? So they said, arise, let us go up against them. For we have seen the land, and it indeed it is very good. Of course, they don't have title to it, but that, that doesn't bother them. said, would you do nothing? Do not hesitate. Go enter and possess the land. Verse 10. When you go, you will come to a secure people and a large land, for God has given it into your hands. Ever notice how, how people always like to attach the name of God to whatever it is they're doing in order to give it legitimacy, in order to make it look good in front of everybody? Well, this is God's will. Parents, watch out. Your kids are going to use that on you. Well, well, it's God's will for me to do this. I, I prayed about it, and God told me. See, we live in a society where people do that all the time, and it's nothing more than 
than um, horse manure, I'll put it politely. So they, they're going to use the name of God. All through this section you see religion operating. They're not anti-God. They're not anti-religion. They love religion. But it's false. And it's going to lead the nation into tremendous apostasy. So verse 11, 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zorah and Ashtol, armed with weapons of war. They went up and encamped in Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. And therefore they called that place Mahanadan to this day. There it is, west of Kiriath-Jerim. See, this adds, uh, this indicates that the writer wrote at a time when the people were familiar with all this. So, you know, just right over there, folks, at Kiriath-Jerim. You know where that is. And it's there just to this day. They passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim, and they came to the house of Micah. Now we're back to the, to the religious scam of Micah. Then the five men, verse 14, Then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you know that there are in the, these houses an ephod? That was the, the outer garment of a priest. Household idols, a carved image and a molded image. In other words, you know this guy's got a great operation here for God. And he has everything, and God has blessed them. And maybe we can get some of this blessing too. See, that's, that's this magical concept that somehow if we just do it right, have the right people associated with us, then everything's going to be good, and, and uh, God will bless us. Now, therefore, consider what you should do. So they turned aside there, verse 15, and came to the house of the young Levi, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The 600 men armed with their weapons of war who were with the children of Dan stood by the entrance of the gate. So here's Micah's house. He's got his large hacienda outside the front yard, and then there's the gate. And outside the gate, he's surrounded by these 600 armed men from the tribe of Dan now. And the five men come in to, uh, to speak to him. And uh, entering there, we read the second half on the second half of verse 17. Entering there, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image. So now the Danites are going to hijack Micah's false religion. Now the Levite is standing at the entrance of the gate with 600 men who are armed with weapons of war. When these went into Micah's house, verse 18, and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, molded image, the priest said to them, "What are you doing?" They said, "Be quiet." Put your hand over your mouth. Come with us. We'll give you a better deal. We'll really make you prosperous. You just think you had a good deal here with Micah, but now you're going to really have health and wealth. We'll build you a crystal cathedral and a fine parsonage, and you'll have a Learjet and everything that goes along, and everybody will know that God is blessing you because of your, your wonderful devotion to Him. So we read, be a father and priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? See, notice this is Israel. We're God's people. See, they, they, false religion is loaded with religious verbiage. That's why it always makes me uncomfortable when I'm around people who are always saying, well, praise God and amen and thank you for this and isn't Jesus wonderful and Praise Jesus and all that little religious verbiage. Now, sometimes immature believers do that because they think that's what you're supposed to do as a believer. But that doesn't make you Christian. It doesn't make you spiritual to use all that, that religious verbiage. And I try to stay away from it as much as possible. 
So they use all this verbiage just to give legitimacy to what they want. And then verse 21, they, uh, the Levite goes with them. Then they turned and departed and put the little ones, the livestock, and the goods in front of them, and off they go. And when they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. In other words, Micah got his neighbors together, and they went after him. And they called out to the children of Dan. So they, they turned around to Micah and said, What ails you that you've gathered such company? In other words, how, how come you're coming after us? What's the problem here? And, of course, Micah's going to whine because now he's been upstaged and he's lost, his, um, the, he's lost the goose that has laid the golden egg, as it were. And he's not going to have uh, all of this prosperity anymore because his God is being taken away. Notice how silly this is. People think that we, we, in human viewpoint, we reduce God to something we can control. He says in verse 24, So he said, You have taken away my gods, which I made. Well, what kind of a god is it if you made it? But human viewpoint is blind to the truth like that. And when people are in human viewpoint, they will suck up any kind of false teaching that comes along as long as it uses the right verbiage and is packaged in the right kind of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of phraseology. And the children of Dan said to him, verse 25, Don't let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you. Look, there's 600 of us and there's only a few of you. If you keep uh, complaining, we'll just kill you. And um, verse 26, And the children of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. He just, just gave up. So verse 27, we have the conclusion of this episode. So they took the things Micah had made and the priesthood belonged to him and went to Laish and to a people quiet and secure. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. Notice that this is illegitimate violence as they are stealing this land from these Sidonians. This is not a legitimate operation under the mandates of, of Joshua or the word of God. Verse 28, there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belonged to Beth Rehob. So they rebuilt the city and dwelt there, and they called the name of that city Dan after the name of Dan their father, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. Now verse 30 and 31 gives us a clue as to what the dynamics are in this whole two-chapter section. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image, and Jonathan the son of Gershom, and the old King James said the son of Manasseh, but the best reading, there's a textual problem there, but the best reading is Gershom the son of Moses. Gershom the son of Moses. So we see that this is the grandson of Moses who has, has led the nation or leads the nation into apostasy and sets up an alternate worship site in Dan, an alternate tabernacle, as it were, in competition with the true worship of God that's taking place at the tabernacle down in Shiloh. And so throughout Israel's history, at least up until the Davidic kingdom, there are two sites in the northern part of Israel for worship. There's the tabernacle for true worship down in Shiloh in the hill country of Ephraim. And then up in the north there is this apostate religion and an apostate priesthood that has the name of Yahweh, has the name of Moses attached to it. It has all the religious verbiage there to give it legitimacy. 
And unless you knew doctrine, unless you had read the Word, unless you knew the Mosaic Law, it was easy for people to get deceived into thinking that this uh, worship site, this shrine up in Dan, was legitimate because it was a shrine to Yahweh. But it wasn't. It was forbidden by, the God, by God, and there was nothing legitimate about it whatsoever. And the reason people got deceived and sucked into going up there was because they didn't know the Word of God. And even if they knew some of it, they didn't have discernment. And they didn't, weren't able to tell truth from error. Now, this is the same thing that is happening today. Now, verse 31 says, So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. So that's up to about 1050 B.C. So there is this competing religious system in Israel. Now, the same thing is happening today. In some ways, it's more overt. It's real easy to turn on the television sometimes, and you see some of these televangelists. You listen to them for 30 seconds, and it's obvious that they're in apostasy and that they're teaching heresy. Others are much more subtle, but we have to learn to develop discernment in order to understand what, what is really being said and taught in many situations. And this calls for critical thinking and critical thinking skills. And this morning I want to take the last 15 minutes in order to go over some, something that is going on today And I'm doing this not because I'm bashing an individual, not because I'm attacking somebody else's ministry, but because we have to develop critical thinking skills. That's part of what the New Testament calls discernment. And sometimes the only way we learn discernment is to see how it operates and how it functions. One of the top bestsellers, I think it was number two or number one on the New York Times bestseller list when I looked last week, it's been number one for a number of weeks, is a little book called The Prayer of Jabez by Bruce Wilkinson. Now, Bruce Wilkinson is the president and founder of the Atlanta-based Walk Through the Bible Ministries. He's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he graduated just a couple of years before I matriculated at Dallas. And part of his, uh, his master's thesis was a project called Walk Through the Bible. I don't know where he got the idea, but I know the first person I ever heard doing a walk through the Bible was someone you folks know, or those of you who have been around a while, was Ralph Braun out of Oregon. Ralph was the pastor who uh, trained your previous pastor here. So uh, I don't know where Bruce got the idea, but, but he made that his master's thesis and turned it into an international ministry. And that ministry has done many good things, and they've published many good books and excellent Bible study tools. And they have been very, very uh, useful and very positive in many, many ways. But this book is one that we should be extremely concerned about um, because it has sold in the neighborhood of five or six million copies in just this last year since about the first of the year. Now, put that in, in, to give that a little perspective, the average Christian book sells between three and 4,000 copies. So when a book sells four or to six million copies in just a few months, it's going to have an impact, and this has had a tremendous impact. Some of you have asked me about this. A lot of you have never heard of this before, and that's because we're on the backside of the desert here in southeastern Connecticut. But when I was traveling in Houston this last uh, 
time. There were many people who were asking me about it, many people who've been familiar with it. There are some doctrinal people that I won't mention their names, but that some of you know and I know who have promoted this book, and they ought to know better. And that just shows that just because you know doctrine doesn't mean you can think or exercise discernment. And that's my principle in doing this, is a lot of people know doctrine, but they can't apply it in terms of discernment. Now, that raises a number of other questions, but I don't want to get distracted by that. The Prayer of Jabez is a book that's based upon a little-known prayer, a little-observed prayer, one that nobody ever paid much attention to before now, in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. Just this short little two-verse section. You can read it with me on the on the uh, overhead. And Jabez was more honorable than his brethren, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bear him with sorrow. It comes from the Hebrew word yabetz, which means to grieve, to sorrow, uh, and possibly implying uh, pain or difficulty. And we don't know from the text whether that is uh, the sorrow there or the pain or the grief is because of the circumstances she was in or what she thought would be his lot in life or because of uh, a difficulty in labor and speculation is should not uh, there should not be any speculation because the text doesn't tell us. So if we want to say anything about that, then it's just pure guesswork and making things up as we go along, and that's always bad theology. She says, because I bear him with sorrow, but we don't know the circumstances. Then we're told, and Yabetz, Jabez called upon the God of Israel. So he is a believer, and he's operating on doctrine. He calls on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed. He's asking God to bless him. But we have to understand the context. And if you look at this section of 1 Chronicles chapter 4, it's a, it's a lengthy genealogy, and just right in the middle of it, you have this two-verse section on, on Jabez and his prayer. Now, if you do a comparison of that with other genealogies, what you will discover is that this man is operating at the same time in history as what we've been studying in Judges 17 and 18, the early period of the Judges, the conquest generation. And he has been given land, and just like the Danites were given land, and every family in the tribe of Dan were given land, he was given land, a portion, an inheritance. And we're told that he called on the God of Israel, saying, and this is the prayer, Oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed, and enlarge my coast. Now, this is the King James Version, and that's a bad translation. The word there in the Hebrew is gabul. Remember I said to pay attention to that word. We would come back to it again. Gabul means a border, a boundary, a piece of land. It refers to a piece of real estate. And he is saying, God, I have been given... A piece of real estate. I want more. I want to establish myself and my tribe. He is operating in the conquest generation on the basis of the promise of God that God gave Israel specific real estate. And so he is taking God at his word and calling upon God to say, Bless me in terms of the promise you've given me. This is what we call the faith rest drill. It's mixing faith with the promise of God. It's a historical situation. God promised them land. He's saying, Lord, let me take the land. Let me have victory over my enemies, uh, as it were. Oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed 
and enlarge my coast. So the concept of blessing here, which is one of those, blessing is a nebulous word. People say bless you when you sneeze, and God bless you when they say goodbye. And some people just say bless you, bless you every time they say anything. And that is a terrible practice to get into because it um, it, it just... Uh, reduces the meaning of the word. It, it, it dilutes the meaning of blessing so that we no longer understand what it means. But in context, it has to do with how God is going to take care of him. He wants to be blessed in a specific way, and that is by taking the territory given to him and, in fact, being, being able to take even more territory. Enlarge my territory and that your hand, that is your power. Hand is always a metaphor in Scripture when it refers to God for his power, that your power would be with me. In other words, he's recognizing that he's going to have victory over the Canaanites, not on the basis of his power, his military might, or his technology, but because God's going to give him the victory. It's the same principle of Joshua, Jericho, and Ai. God gives the victory when we trust in him. It says, and that thy hand would be with me, that thou wouldst keep me from evil. In other words, in context, it's from being destroyed and defeated by the enemy. That it may not grieve me, and God granted him that which he requested. He took the land. That's what this is all about. But that's not how it is handled in this little volume by uh, Dr. Wilkinson. So in this book, let's look at a couple of things that he says in order to evaluate the position. The subtitle for this book is Breaking Through to the Blessed Life. Now, if you have any sense at all, if you read that subtitle, Red Flags Ought to Be Going Off. On the back cover, it states, Do you want to be extravagantly blessed by God? Well, of course you do. Don't we all? What a sales gimmick. Are you ready to reach for the extraordinary, to ask God for the abundant blessings He longs to give you. Now, there's a certain element of truth in that. But remember, a glass of water is necessary for your health and sustenance of life. Maybe 99.9% pure is that drop of cyanide in there that's going to kill you. So just because there's a lot of truth in something doesn't mean that it is something that is profitable. There's probably a certain amount of truth in the book of Koran, in the Bhagavad Gita, in the book of Mormon. But I'm not, I don't want any of you reading those books in order to find edification or value. He goes, it goes on to read at the, on the black blurb, on the back blurb, join Bruce Wilkinson to discover how the remarkable prayer of a little known Bible hero can release God's favor power and protection. It's like God's this machine. If you say the right formula, it'll release that power in your life. Now, that verbiage is so typical. If you know anything about what's going on in the last 30 years, it's typical of the whole health and wealth prosperity gospel movement among charismatics. You'll see how one daily prayer can help you leave the past behind and break through to the life you were meant to live. Now, you ought to be, your, your, your radar ought to be going off at this point. Now, in the preface to his book, Wilkinson writes, I want to teach you how to, quote, pray a daring prayer that God always answers. I want to emphasize that. God always answers. There will not be an exception to this rule. 
is what he is saying. God will always answer this prayer. It's brief, only one sentence with four parts and tucked away in the Bible. But I believe it contains the key to a life of extraordinary favor with God. In other words, what he is saying is you can read the rest of the Bible, but if you don't understand the prayer of Jabez, you will never have what God intends for you to have in your spiritual life. This is the secret key to success in the spiritual life. Beware anybody who says there's one key, there's one step, there's one thing that you need after salvation in order to experience all that God has for you. That's the holiness theology error. error. That's the charismatic error. That was part of many Keswick teachers in the last century. That was part of their error was that at the salvation you got salvation grace. But at some time after salvation, there needed to be a second work, whether they call it yieldedness, whether they call it dedication, whether they call it uh, baptism of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, or all kinds of, la- uh, of labels for it. It's the Christian two-step. Now, I'm from Texas down there. We go dancing and we do the Texas two-step. But this is the Christian two-step. You get one step at the cross and a second step after the cross. And, so, and this is the same kind of thing. The reason you, believer, the reason you don't have what you think you ought to have in your life is because you haven't prayed the prayer of Jabez. Now, some people can't read. I'm amazed at how many people can't read. One book review I read of this book was written by a seminary professor at a seminary up in um, Minneapolis or Minnesota or somewhere up in that area. And he said, now, now this man can't really mean that we're to pray this this prayer, word for word, verbatim, day in and day, you know, like a, like a Catholic rosary where you're always saying your Hail Marys and your offering. Just repeat the same phrase over and over again. Somehow God's going to honor that. He can't really mean that, so he must just mean that we need to in, in, incorporate these principles into our prayer life. No, folks. Read what the man says. He says, This petition has radically changed what I expect from God and what I experience every day by His power. In fact, thousands of believers who are applying its truths are seeing miracles happen on a regular basis. I want you to pay attention to his use of miracles. He said, then describes how he came to understand this. He, he uh, heard a message where Jabez was referred to by the speaker, and so he went and read the, the passage in First Chronicles 4. He says, the next morning I prayed Jabez's prayer word for word. Now, I didn't uh, apply the principles. I mean, there are good principles here to apply. You're a believer. You have an inheritance. We have positional blessings given us. We ought to pray that God would would enable us to be victorious in our Christian growth in advance so that we can uh, achieve those that spiritual growth and realize the blessings He has in store for us. That's legitimate. That's not what He's saying in this book. What He's saying in this book is you've got to pray the prayer word for word. And He prayed it that morning and the next and the next. I'm quoting Him directly. He says, 30 years later, I haven't stopped. So for 30 years, he's been praying this prayer word for word, day in and day out. I haven't stopped. If you were to ask me what sentence, other than my prayer for salvation, has revolutionized my life and ministry the most, I would tell you that it was the cry of a gimper named Jabez, who is still remembered not for what he did, but for what he prayed. He goes on to say, this is on page 11, he goes on to say on page 86, I challenge you to make the Jabez prayer of blessing part of the daily fabric of your life. To do that, I encourage you to follow unwaveringly the plan outlined here for the next 30 days. Once he says, pray it every day, put it on your wall. And they have developed a whole cottage industry around the prayer of Jabez. I got a catalog from Christian book distributors the other day. And... Uh, 
they have a whole two-page layout with all the little gimmicks and gadgets that you can get so that you can remember the prayer of Jabez in your life. It's certainly making somebody prosperous, isn't it? They have travel coffee mugs with the prayer of Jabez on it, a desktop little thing in a frame to put on your desk. They have a prayer of Jabez devotional, framed calligraphy. They have it printed on a cross to put on your wall. They have a CD of the book. They have the prayer of Jabez for kids. They have the prayer of Jabez for teens. Who knows who else they're going to have the prayer of Jabez for. So the claim here is that if we just pray the prayer of Jabez word for word, then God's power will be released in our lives. A good friend of mine that's spoken in this pulpit before received this letter from Walk Through the Bible Ministries. It was addressed to him as a leader of a ministry. He said, would your donors, listeners, or viewers like to discover how to release the miraculous power of God in their lives? Now, this is a metaphysical approach to God that somehow I just have to find the, the magic bullet, the formula, say it the right way, and all of a sudden things are going to be great. So let's critique it, first of all. He says it's a prayer God always answers. That's a mechanistic view of God. It, it treats Him like He's a machine. That all we have to do is figure out the right way to approach Him, the right way to say it, and God's going to, going to bless us. It's, um, he says that uh, in the... In his development, Wilkinson states that Jabez got it right. He figured out exactly what it took to get blessing from God. So the implication is that if we just get the right formula, go through the right ritual, say it the right way, then God will, will prosper us. That's what they did in the um, uh, fertility religions in the ancient world. As long as you, you had sex with the right temple prostitute, then God would bless you. It's the same principle. Point number two. It's a quick-fix solution for prosperity or blessing. You don't need doctrine. You don't need spiritual growth. You don't need to be in fellowship. There's no mention that I saw of the principle in Psalm 66 that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. There's no mention of the fact that before we pray to God, we need to be in fellowship. Just say the words verbatim over and over again all through the day. No need to be in fellowship. No need to think biblically. No need to think at all. Just recite it. Point number three, it panders to a subjective apostate society's yearning for blessing and validation from God by diluting and destroying the meaning of blessing. They dilute and destroy the meaning of blessing. And that is just, that's what everybody wants. We just want quick, superficial solutions so that we can get on with our lives and not have to do anything like uh, renovate our thinking. He redefines miracles so that a miracle can mean anything. Principle. If anything can be a miracle, then nothing is a miracle. If the fact that you opened your eyes this morning is a miracle, then anything can be a miracle. A miracle is when God works to abrogate the natural scientific laws and does something in contrast to that. For example, when Peter's walking on the water, when somebody was born blind and then Jesus healed them and they're no longer blind, that is a complete reversal of the scientific laws that God has established. But that's not what what is written in this book. It says to pray for larger, larger borders is to ask for a miracle. It's that simple. Quote, a miracle is an intervention by God to make something happen that wouldn't normally happen. That's a pathetic definition of a miracle. 
You can make anything a miracle that way. What is normal? What you expect? So whenever something happens that you don't expect, you just say, well, that's a miracle. And furthermore, in terms of relating miracle to blessing, despite attempts to make to take materialism out of his concept, his illustrations fail to do that. He, he does try to say the blessing of God is not to be taken materially or financially. But his illustrations are like, like the following. He, said, he says, um, um, you can hang the Jabez prayer on the wall of every room in your house and nothing will happen. It's only what you believe will happen and therefore do next, that will release God's power for you and bring about a life change. But when you act, you will step up to God's best for you. I'm living proof. This year, that is the year 2000, Walk Through the Bible Ministries will conduct over 2,500 Bible conferences, 50 each weekend. The ministry now publishes 10 magazines each month to help individuals and families grow in God's Word every day. We recently passed the 100 million mark in total issues published. Well, what's he saying? It's materialism. Not only that, but but... The reason he says it will work, ultimately, in three times in the book, he says this. You can know this is right because it worked for me. What's wrong with that? It is never right because it works for you. Go out there and you can find every charlatan in the world, and they will be producing a whole rack of anecdotes of people who their false procedures helped. Biblically, the only thing that works is what the Bible says. I know it works because the Bible says so. That's why we never sing that hymn, He Lives. He lives, He lives. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. Wrong! He lives because the Bible says He rose from the grave, not because I've had some subjective experience with Jesus. I mean, never. It's objective. Our, our belief is based on historical reality, not subjective impressions. But that's what he basically said. You can ask me how, he knows we're, how we know he's right. It's because it worked for him. Fourth point, he uses metaphysical language common to charismatics, using release miracles. and It's just the same two-step operation. I don't, somehow it's too tough just to obey God's Word and study the Word and be in Bible class three or four times a week. I just want something quick and simple. Fifth, it violates the Scripture method for prayer. For example, in Matthew 6, 7, Jesus said, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Well, this is meaningless repetition. You just pray word for word five or six times a day, hang it on your wall and repeat it every time you think about it, and God's going to bless you. Six, it operates on speculation. Over and over again throughout this book, he speculates about what Jabez was thinking or what he was doing as he prayed or the details about his birth or what his mother was thinking. And none of that is stated in the Bible. And then he builds doctrines on speculation, which is terrible. Point number eight, he, also, he uses success stories to validate his method. That's it. Success stories. One success story after another. But you can watch Oprah and get the same kind of thing. And then finally, point number nine, he completely divorces his application from the historical exegetical context of 1 Chronicles chapter 4. He takes it out of context, twists it and distorts it in order to make it teach what he claims it teaches. So be careful. There's all kinds of false teaching out there, and some of the wolves are in sheep's clothing. They've gone to good schools. They were taught better. 
They know better. They have taught better in the past, but they are they now teach false doctrine. So this is something we need to be aware of, and I know that some of you have asked me about this book because of family members or friends that have gotten into this. So uh, you might even want to pass this tape along to them, and uh, we need, I think, to even put it out on the Internet in order to uh, make sure people get a good biblical critique of this. With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, and that's what we base our our lives on is your word, not on our experience, not on our feelings, not on anything uh, in the human realm, our works or human effort. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and you have given us an inheritance, and that our realization of that is never based upon our own works, our own effort, and just as our salvation is not based on our own works and our own effort. Salvation is based by faith alone in Christ alone, as is the spiritual life. We simply believe what you have written. We apply it into our lives. We understand these principles. And the Holy Spirit then takes that and produces spiritual growth. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without faith, without hope, without eternal life, that they would take this opportunity now to make, make that certain in their life. They, they would, right now, right where they sit, decide what they are trusting in for eternal salvation. You don't need to pray to God, walk an aisle, raise your hand, or any other human factor. God knows what you are trusting in. God knows what you believe. And if you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried, rose again the third day, then you will have eternal life. And that is a free gift from God that can never be taken away. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied and that we would be challenged by them. You would help us to think critically to evaluate the things around us and the things that we see and hear, that we might not be deceived by false teaching. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.